Hey, everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Uh, real quick, before we get started today, I've got Chris Arnotti on the podcast. Chris has been a huge influence on me, just, I think, giving me permission to think about things in a way that I hadn't before. And I'm really excited to share this with you. He's got a great book out. I quote him in my upcoming book, Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. This is just one of those conversations that I'm been waiting for for a long time. So you're going to get a lot out of it. It goes a little long, a little longer than our normal podcast. Stick with it. You're going to love this. It's really important. Thanks, everybody. Take care. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Last year, I had a conversation with a guy named Chris Arnotti. You heard at the time, if you listen to that one, that he's working, was working on a book. That book is out. It's called Dignity. I have read it and listened to it and gone through it in multiple formats. And uh, it's as fantastic as I thought it would be. Chris agreed to come back on the podcast. I am going to tell everybody, we, we re-ran this one as one of our best of podcast earlier this year. And I am not going to go back through the things we chatted about, his backstory, kind of the way he came about putting this book together. That stuff you can get on that earlier podcast, and I'm going to invite you to go back to that. We're going to go deeper this time. And so coming to us from somewhere in upstate New York, Chris Arnotti, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Thank you for having me. I want to ask you some questions that I haven't heard other people asking you. I want to start with this one. As you've been doing the rounds now with this book, there's a certain narrative that treats you like a Jane Goodall character. Like you've gone out into live with these in the wilderness with uh, this unknown foreign species and now come back to civilization. What are people failing to understand when they ask you questions in that mindset? You you are very much correct about that happening, and the fact that that is happening is as much an indictment about our current state of affairs as anything. What I did shouldn't be jarring. It shouldn't be shocking. It should be what everybody in the media does so that you know they should be as familiar with where you are, Boehner, as they are with Washington, D.C. Not intimately familiar, but they shouldn't see somebody who goes out and drives around the country as somehow – a noble thing as opposed to something that most people should do. To reframe your question, I've always at the back of my mind feel at some level that how it's presented and how I'm asked, and in some senses my answers are pretty insulting to people who (laughs) are in these towns that I visited. Like, why is this person telling my story? Why can't I tell it directly? I feel like that maybe aspect of the book is the thing that makes it so visceral. I don't know if you'd call yourself a journalist or not. I know you've done some work with The Guardian and and other publications, but your work is different than journalism. It's more allowing essentially a voice, a, a voice to speak. Why is that the way you chose to go about presenting this narrative? When I first wrote the book, I actually wasn't in it. I just it was basically just my character, my role, my story wasn't part of it. 
it was just basically 100 interviews stitched together. But that just didn't work because, A, that's unfair because I was there and I, I had a role. And, B, it, it just read very flat. But that was still basically the goal of the book, which is in many cases I – when people look at it, I think they might be a little bit surprised. There are places where I literally just put down the interview. I don't fill in details. I just simply say I said, they said, I said, they said. And that was very much a decision that where I wanted to highlight the stories of the people. In, in many ways, the whole project was exactly about that, which is highlighting – stories of people who generally don't get their stories highlighted. And I wanted to do that in as clean a way as possible and as a readable way as possible because I think so much attention is given to a handful of people and so little attention is given to the bulk of people. The subtext of my book is also that if we don't listen to these people, no matter how well we are intended, we meaning the elites, meaning myself, I don't necessarily mean the people listening into this. I mean, you know, me and the politicians, the, the wealthy donors to the politicians, the people who lead nonprofits, the bankers, the lawyers who make policy without necessarily listening to the people their policy impacts. I didn't want to put another layer of me saying, I've heard these voices and here's here's what I think about that. I just want people to say judge for themselves what these people are saying. Right. In our last podcast, we talked about the concept of front row and back row. Maybe it would help with our conversation today just to review that for a sec so that we can use that term and, and everybody listening is up to speed on what you're talking about. Because I, I did find that a very descriptive way not of an indictment of people, but of basically describing a phenomena that we see repeated over and over again. We have many divisions in this country, the ones we talk about a lot, class, race, um, geography. But I, I think one of the most salient divisions is education, how much education somebody has and how that ends up impacting them and their life choices and how they view the world. So the we I used in the prior discussion was what I mean by what I call the front row, the people who generally, you know, cartoonishly sat in the front, always raised their hands, excelled at school, excelled at high school, excelled at college, excelled at grad school, got PhDs, went to Ivy, Ivy League schools, then went went to DC or New York City or LA or college towns, you know, throughout the country. And I think that group of people, the front row, has a disproportionate voice both in politics and in policy. And what I call pretty much everyone else is people who, whose educational experiences is, might be limited to high school or maybe state school, maybe a trade school, maybe community colleges. And that's what I call the back row, people who necessarily weren't interested in, in education. It wasn't their primary focus. It wasn't their primary goal. It wasn't something they necessarily cared about or were good at. And I think an extension of that seems to be that we've, in a sense, wired the world for the values and priorities of the front row and often look at the back row and say, Hey, how do we get you in the front row? Right. Going back to the prior discussion, the book is trying to get people to listen to the back row because I think so rarely we do that. We make policy without really listening, without you know, asking people most impacted by the policy. Consequently, not because of bad intent. I, I don't think anybody in the front row is really bad and badly intended. I think they really do feel they're doing the best. But what they end up doing is creating policy that works for them or works for their worldview. And that basically means, as you said, 
looking at people in the back row, looking at the poor, looking to the looking to the people, the homeless, and saying, "Here's a way to become like me," rather than maybe I can become more like you, or I could restructure society to value what you value more. I think what you're saying is really that we're all humans, right? <laughs> and right. I mean, it, I think we often discount that. I remember back to my engineering and planning days when I was asked to solve some problem and I would look in my engineer's toolbox and say, well, here's, here's how we solve this problem for everybody. And I was doing what I could and what I thought was right, but I wasn't really cognizant of anything outside of my own worldview. That kind of just makes me a person, right? Correct. And the way I think about it is like you use a phrase toolbox. The front row has a toolbox, how they address and solve problems and the back row has a toolbox that's different. And I think the front row basically says when push comes to shove, how they tend to solve things, which impacts everybody because they have a disproportionate voice in the matter, is they say they try to give the back row the front row's toolbox. <laughs> they say throw away your old toolbox and have ours. When, you know, that's not really how people operate. That's kind of in many ways very insulting is to say, you know, Get rid of the way you've done things. Get the, rid of the way you're comfortable doing things. Get rid of the way you've – what you choose to value and use my system of valuation, my my system of – my worldview. And the reason that often is more, more offensive than I think people realize is the toolbox that the back row has – are things that in many cases – there's a lot of bad tools there. I'm not going to – we can address that later. But the other part of their worldview is it's stuff that doesn't require credentials. It's stuff that – it's forms of meaning. It's forms of valuation that allows somebody who isn't born with a lot to have a role in society, to find things that they, they value and then values them. And so by devaluing their toolbox, by devaluing their system, it's extraordinarily elitist because it takes away many things that give them a, a place in the world that don't cost anything. It doesn't cost any material things. It doesn't, it doesn't require credentials. Things like place, like valuing where they are, finding meaning – in your town or your community or your family or your congregation. Those are things that are gifted to you simply by birth. You know, you don't have to go away and go through a series of institutions to to find the value in those. And I feel like in many cases, we've devalued those forms of meaning, those tools. One of the key tools in the toolbox of the front row is to move. If there's better opportunity here, move. If you uh, can get a raise or a promotion, move. Why is that not a back row tool? And why is it looked at differently in the back row? Again, I think because often place and the value of place, and it can be as simple as the sense of importance and meaning and, and ethereal metaphysical greatness you get from the hills near you or the lakes near you or the trees in your yard, things such as small as that can really those are free to people. <laughs> those those things have real value. You know, the idea of continuity, of being in a place and knowing it values you and it, you value it, that doesn't cost anything. I think we tend to, in the front row, 
the tools we have and the value are things that we can measure the, the importance of. It's very hard to measure the importance of staying in a community all your life. The network of connections you have, the fact that you, you wake up each morning and you look out and you see the same lake and you know every nook and cranny in the lake or you know the people around the lake, that's hard to put a price tag on. So we tend to think about it as like, ah, that's not very important. People can just find another lake <laughs> or they might want to find a mountain to live next to. Beyond being insulting at that level and beyond being kind of being uniform and not understanding the value of that, it's also just the logistics. You know, it actually costs money to move. <laughs> and people are not necessarily in a position where they can just move. You know, they may not have uh, a supportive family. Their, their family may need them. Their grandparents may need them for health care um, to drive them to the store. They may need the, the weekly or the Sunday night dinner with the extended family. They may really need that. And the idea that people should become economic migrants in their own country, that we should treat that as a necessity is pretty insulting. And I also think it's great if people want to move. I've moved a lot. I enjoy it. But that's me. <laughs> you know, that's not. I know a lot of people who aren't like that. And I have money, so I can do that. There are quite a few examples in your book of people who didn't move because they were helping a family member stay sober. They were uh, helping support a, a friend or a relative. Uh, they had kids in the area that they you know, had, had connections. They didn't want to leave very human things, right? Very human things. I think there's a certain strain of thought that says, uh, well, if you've got a family member that's, you know, trying to stay sober, there's social support for that. Let's throw some money at uh, a regional program for safe and sober campaign. Uh, if your kids are struggling, let's put some money into early childhood. If you know, your parent is elderly and, and sick, you know, we should just have universal health care and, and provide that treatment and, and bring a nurse out to their place. I'm not even want to debate whether those programs are good or not. I'm just wondering if there's something missing in that kind of a response to these very human things that we struggle with. Again, yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a lot missing there. It's replacing local community with basically officials. As well-intended as it is, and I happen to support a lot of that. Like you said, I don't want to get in there. But I can support that and at the same time realize that replacing human connections with a bureaucracy can be very <laughs> – can take the soul out of people's lives and can become very sterile. I mean I certainly saw that in my work with addiction where you know, there's all these wonderful government programs and nonprofit institutions that do – amazing work. But the physical manifestation of those places is sterile, cold, and dehumanizing. It's like being a mouse in a habit trail. I think I liken it. You're like a mouse in a maze. You're, walk, you're going from one linoleum form fluorescent light institution to another with all these kind of dehumanizing rules and paperwork. And it's, you know, and it's, it's gotten to a point where you can almost not touch people you know, in these places for fear of you know, breaking a rule. And that, while certainly on a statistical level, might work, 
it's cold, at least many people feeling like they just don't have a role in this world. And I think one of the things we in the front row tend to forget is just how important community is, how important personal connections are. I think I might have said this on your podcast in the past is like we tend to think as long as people have, you know, an iPhone, a car, a house, everything's good. But, you know, instead of instead of caring about people having two iPhones, maybe one iPhone and three friends, <laughs> you know, it's that part of the equation, the human part, the, the, that is, isn't part of the equation because it can't be part of the equation. We, you know, when we tend to model things, our toolbox doesn't know how to think about the human connections. So we've tended to value it. I wrote down two viewpoints. I'm going to read them to you. Uh, view number one, people are suffering in despair in a country with such affluence. We have a moral responsibility to act collectively through government to address that. And view number two, government social safety net programs destroy families and civic social safety nets and make people worse off. I guess what I hear you saying in your book and also in the interviews is like, yes, <laughs> like both of those things are in a way true. And I, I think we struggle to reconcile that. Am I hearing you wrong? And if I'm not, like, how do you reconcile that need in an affluent society for us to essentially act morally together? but yet our actions, in a sense, like undermining the very beehive in which the bees live. The way I treat the social safety net, which I'm for, I'm for universal health care, I'm for a greater welfare state. I treat it as harm reduction. The problems are bigger than that, but in the inter- I don't see us solving the bigger problems. So until then, this is a way to, to help people cope with a system which I think is massively unfair. So it's a bit like I use the word harm reduction because it's the way I treat addiction, which is there are some people who you it's pretty clear are going to be addicts most of their life for reasons that are very complex, but generally because they've been they're basically in a system that devalues them, humiliates them, abuses them, and addiction is a way of coping in some senses with that pain. You're not going to get that person sober, unlikely. And until then, give them free needles, um, clean needles so they don't do more harm. Give them access to um, clean water, um, access to hospital cares and detox centers, etc., to minimize the pain and damage done. I see that in terms of how I view social. I don't think a robust welfare state, which I support, is going to change the structural problems, which are deeper, which is a lack of local community and a lack of human interaction and a lack of community in a system that intrinsically devalues those things. The way I say it is we've built an economic and a policy framework that is not conducive to community health. I think that's a phrase somebody who reviewed my book used, and it's better than anything I've written, that framework, that how we've structured our overall society is not conducive to community health. So until then, until we can restructure society, be conducive to community health, we need to have a more robust welfare state. I want to ask you about, in the lines of those, the harm reduction concept, there were a few times in the book where you documented people who were doing things that were clearly harmful <laughs> to themselves things you wouldn't want your kids doing yet you did it in such a way, or I think the circumstances were such that you always allowed people to say, this is messed up. Like I, I want to, in a sense, do this differently. And 
you got the feeling that people's desperation and despair was contrary to the comfortable narrative of these are just bad people making bad choices. The choices were actually things that people struggled with. I have this difficult situation. Here's how I'm dealing with it. I don't think this is necessarily the best way to deal with it, but this is the way I've got to deal with it. Talk a little bit about harm reduction in terms of having that understanding of humans. How does the idea of, well, we just need people to go cold turkey and and end up here in this front row, as opposed to being more like a, a, a ladder or a stairs that we would help people get to like a different landing on the way up? The more religious way to frame it is, I think, you know, before you judge somebody, walk a mile in their shoes. I think that's the first framework. I think the second one is the more geeky framework is, look, I think you've got to look at people's decisions in the framework of, A, their toolbox they have available to them, to use the phrase we've been using, or the possible choices they have. So I think when you view people's choices not, not necessarily just at the individual level, but in the aggregate. When you view how a group chooses to respond to something, if you look at it in the framework of what's their options, <laughs> you're, you're less inclined to come away saying, wow, that, that was a messed up decision. The one I always use that I think – and I use it for economists because economists are the one group of people I really want to get it more than they do get – is the lotto, the lottery. Some people, mostly economists, call the lottery a stupidity tax. You know, um, why would anybody bet $10 on a one in 25 million chance? I always say that, look, the people calling it a stupidity tax have a lot of options on how to make a million dollars and a lot more than somebody who <laughs> is working at the 7-Eleven and struggling with um, – parents who are addicts or one parent of addicts or you know a sister-in-law who is catching a few charges who can't necessarily walk into the bank get a small business loan to start a business or get a mortgage on a house that's going to appreciate the people making that decision that it's a stupidity tax have generally a lot of options on how to make a million dollars that are not long shots so they're going to go with that way but if you're don't have those options, the really only option you have to ever become a millionaire is to buy the lottery, lotto. And so in some senses, you can think of the absurd odds as a usury tax. You know, you they can't borrow money to go make a business. So instead, we're going to give them this extraordinarily long shot that basically charges them an arm and a leg. So I think when you reframe it that way, I think the lotto, you know, if I was poor, I'd play the lotto, <laughs> you know, because because what other shots do you have? You look at a lot of the decisions in the frameworks of available options, people look a little bit less irrational. The other thing is like, you know, it's like in some cases, some people just want to live their life differently. They just value different things. To be approved of by our society, you have to live this particularly narrow way. I'm not inclined to think that's what people in the front row think they're doing. I think they would – if you reframe it that way, I think they'd be a little more open-minded to thinking about people in a different in different light. Right. That's a fascinating way to put it. I remember Andres Twani talking about life in New Orleans and how after Hurricane Katrina – and he actually used Minnesota. So this like hit me personally – close to home. He said, you know, the Minnesotans came in 
and, you know, said, well, we'll get you new houses and here, you know, you, now you have a 30 year mortgage to pay back and, but Hey, we'll get you low rates and good financing and you can get in. And he said, you weren't respecting the life people in New Orleans had. They had a life focused around leisure activities and baking uh, gumbo for 16 hours a day and playing Zydeco music. And they're not Minnesotans. You just like rob them of their life. And that hit me really hard. Like, oh, yeah, I, I can see, you know, because I value Zydeco music and good Cajun food as well. Um, those things didn't spring out of Norwegian culture up here. They came out of something else. You're calling on people to be more open-minded. Is that a fair statement? Right. Well, about pe- other people's value system. Again, not everybody values, again, three iPhones. <laughs> you know, to put it in a geek language, you know, you, you put the 15 different things you want out of life. People have different weightings on that, on those different 15 functions. Some people would rather stay in their neighborhood and go to a family or a block party every every Tuesday instead of you know getting a college degree and having a house with a sleek new kitchen. I mean, you know, people have different value systems. I think my original work was with basically homeless addicts in the Bronx and the South Bronx, and there was one particular character in the book. Her name is Beauty. I remember once saying, "I feel really sorry for her," and then. You know, somebody else said, why? Like, you know, she's okay. She's been doing this a long time. This is what she, this is what she, in some senses, wants. Why are you feeling sorry for her? Because she doesn't have your world, your life. That really struck me. It was like a a real collapsing moment. I'm like, yeah, you know, you're right. (laughs) My goal isn't to change her life. It shouldn't be to change her life. My goal is to let her live her life to the best way she can and and what she wants. You had a fascinating conversation on Econ Talk with Russ Roberts. I adore Russ. I think he's fantastic, and I love his podcast. It was very interesting when you all started to talk about the trade-offs of globalization and free markets. I'd like to quote from your book here for a second and then ask you to elaborate a little bit. In Dignity, you say, we, and we being the front row people, we believed in free trade, globalization, and deregulation. Our metrics for success became how high the stock market got, how large the profits were, how efficient the company was. If certain communities, towns, and people suffered in this, it was all for the greater good in the name of progress. Our obsession with economic growth empowered massive corporations that filled many communities with franchises and big box stores, crushing downtowns that had once had small locally owned shops and restaurants. The economy grew But gone were the local economy, the labor union, and the lifetime jobs for those without a college degree. I think you all talked about a full accounting of the costs and the benefits of this system. And there's a certain assumption amongst the free market people, and and I I tend to be more on that side, I'll acknowledge, and the free trade people, which if, if you made me pick a side, I would be more sympathetic to trade than not. I feel like you two had a a real powerful conversation about the full accounting of the benefits of that and the costs of that. How deeply do we discount the costs of that kind of system? And how would we stop discounting that? I think me and Russ were not going to agree. I just, <laughs> and as much as I appreciate the conversation, I felt, I felt at some point in the conversation that put bluntly, I don't think we at all think about the costs. And so, you know, we tend to make decisions by putting a little in a little spreadsheet, positives, negatives. If the sum is positive, then we do it. 
but I don't think we know how to measure either the positive or the negatives, and I certainly know we don't know how to measure the negatives. I mean, the negatives are – they're not just secondary and tertiary impacts. They're like They can be in a spreadsheet, the tertiary uh, impact, but that actually lo- looms larger than the singular one. You know, it's things like, like – I mean, again, how, how do you value these things? How do you value the loss of community? How do you devalue the loss of downtown? How do you value the dispersion of family? How do you value, you know, the bowling league that's always been there for 50 years closing because there aren't enough people who have steady employment to be able to take Tuesday night off? I, I don't think we can ever account for the costs – and so that's kind of why I'm at loggerheads at some level with the people who, who are, you know, are interested in this conversation, the front row policymakers, mostly the economists, most, you know, because their framework is so database, so positivist, so utilitarian that it's just like two different philosophers talking within two different frameworks. I cannot give you a utilitarian value for all those things that have been lost, I just let you know that they've been lost and that and their loss is devastating, not just in economic terms, but in very human terms. People lose their sense of identity. That it's partially why suicide rates are going up, is there's a great empty spiritual emptiness. You know, I'll use the word spiritual because it's also about faith being eroded. But community in some sense is a very spiritual thing, those things that you can't measure. And there's a great spiritual hole out there that just simply can't fit in the framework that we tend to look at these these policies in. And, and so I'm, I, I get immensely frustrated because all I can say, simply say is, this is bad. I can't tell you how <laughs> I can't tell you how to fix it necessarily, and I can't prove to you it's bad in your framework of how you think about things. I can just tell you it's bad. You have this unique experience on Wall Street and trading bonds and working in a sense the macro economy. At Strong Towns we talk about human habitat and human ecosystems and we kind of reference basically pre-depression, pre-World War II cities as having more of the components of a human ecosystem than this kind of current system that we've set up. And I'll categorize the current system as one that you know places a high value on efficiency, the globalization system, the idea that you know, you're going to be better off if we can drive down the price of your iPhone as opposed to, you know, if you can walk to your church. It seemed to me that when we go back to a system or we ponder a system of human habitat, of local ecosystems, a more localized economy, human beings trading with each other in a market in that system tend to find the nuance between those values a lot more. But when we get to a centralized system, one with a lot of distance between us and where we live and the economic framework that's set up, you have no recourse but to you know value things based on these kind of efficiency heuristics and what you can measure in a spreadsheet. Is that a theory that holds any weight with you? Is that something that could maybe reconcile these two conversations that can't chat with each other? That's a nice framework. I, I don't like to use cliches, but a cliche I use a lot is like, you know, basically when you, the distant shareholder <laughs> effect, you know, really 
changes things. I can reference my own hometown. I don't want to talk about, you know, the good old days because I, I grew up in some of those good old days and they just they weren't all good. The new system has a lot advantages. But I think we've gone too far on the profit and efficiency front and taken out the human element, which I think very much comes from the distant shareholder impact. My book dwells a lot on McDonald's. McDonald's very much, the whole very structure is in many ways one of the first movers in that whole framework. I think I've guesstimated like a thousand franchises across the country. They can be very different. And they can be very different based on local management and vote based on local franchise owner. In that sense, it gives you both a framework of the of the problems with distant distant ownership. You know, there's only so much they can do, the local franchises, but also it gives you some wiggle room. I mean, the simple rule of thumb is if a franchise owner is there on the premise and is intimately involved in his business, the place has a lot more soul. It's as simple as that. There's, it's a lot more of a community. All McDonald's are, in my mind, community centers, but the ones that are really thriving as community centers are generally because the franchise owner is there on the spot and is part of the community. One of my frustrations of offering up solutions is if I have a solution in mind, it's very much a it's very much about returning local power back to the local communities. But I don't know how to do that through legislation or policy. It's something I think that needs to be – it's a larger issue that needs to be the culture. Our, our U.S. culture needs to revalue local ownership again and want it. And I'm not sure we can go back that way. The McDonald's part of this is fascinating because you do have kind of the juxtaposition of this corporation that is all about – hyper-efficiency, GDP maximizing, kind of grinding everything down to a, a commodity. I, my wife has, a, has an uncle who ran a farm that produced eggs for McDonald's. It was amazing because he'd been a farmer for a long, long time and then got the contract with McDonald's. And it seemed like this great thing. You know, now you had this guaranteed buyer and all this. And it just, it basically like ground him down to nothing because the model is, one of efficiency who, you know, we're, we're trying to make this as, as cheap as possible. Yet here you're not talking about this place as a community center, as a place where people are gathering and you're starting to see like the flickers either dying or rising. I'm, I'm, I think it maybe is both in, in different places of what a community could be. I'm really loath to ask you to solve these problems because I, I respect everything you're saying about like, I'm shining a light on this, but I don't have like a five point plan and I, I don't expect you to. But I think there's a transition between the McDonald's and the churches that you talked about. And there's got to be like a, a, a place in between those where it's not just the franchisee owner, but it's like the owner, you know, like the guy in the community that owns the place and he employs the local kid and like someday maybe that kid will own the place. What do you think is like an evolutionary next step beyond the McDonald's and the free ice machine and the, you know, 99 cent hamburger that gets us a little closer to, to what dignity would look like. Before I answer that, I'll loop back about the McDonald's, you know, the McDonald's paradoxes. I, the way I frame it is if people are finding community or forming communities in a place that's intended to be entirely short-term and transactional, that to me is a statement of how much people craved community. They want community so much that they're actually ad hoc forming in places that are not conducive to it. So it's I literally think, a fast food place. 
Yes, and people have turned it into a community center. The way I say it is if you give people a world of banal franchises, they'll form community within that world of banal franchises. You know, like it's it's a sign to me of how desperate for people our community that no matter how long the odds are, people will still make it. I think, you know, the answer to your question is I we got to go back to local ownership. <laughs> but I also know you can't transition there because the minute we all say that, I say that. But I'm going to buy something on Amazon. If I'm not going to go trek downtown to the bookstore, find a place to park. You know what I mean? If if it's going to cost more, it's easy to talk the talk, but it's hard to walk the walk because, you know, we all, everybody likes to <laughs> buy the cheapest product if they can. You know, if it's available. Um, I don't know how you transition back to a place where I guarantee you if you went back to the world where the Amazons wasn't available, where things were more localized ownership, and you actually had to pay a little bit more for all these things, but the overall community was healthier. I think people would be – I think once there, people would be comfortable. (laughs) People would say, oh, yeah, this is better. It's more stable. It gives – more. it's more equitable. It gives more people meaning. But I don't know how you make that transition. It's kind of like once you've gone to the dark side, (laughs) like how, how do you go back? As great as you know, as efficient as our system is, it may give a better, more material life for you know the, a certain number of people. But it also really crushes a number of people, and the people it crushes you just don't see. So it's easy not to say like, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> and you can't see the person you're putting out of work by when you shop at Amazon because you know how do you see that? If I have a policy framework, it. To the, I'm kind of loath to say because I, one, of, one of the whole points of this book was to admit I don't know what's going on. You know, let people make their own decisions. But my my own at my own personal level is moving towards a realization that empower local communities. You know, take some power away from the distant shareholders and return it to the communities. I don't know how you legislate that yeah. or how we go there. I want to talk a little about race. I know for two white guys to sit and talk about racial issues can be problematic, but your book had such depth of story and really depth of character in trying to kind of struggle with the, the racial component of these despair, these places that are left behind. I've called race an accelerator of despair. I feel like you're there as well. Like the, the problems we see in places that were predominantly white we also see in places that have large minority populations, but they tend to be accelerated by the minority status. How far off am I on that? And would you call race an accelerator? And how big of an issue is race in accelerating or accentuating you know, the, the problems that you're seeing in these places that are struggling? 50% of my book is basically documenting um, minority communities, and I have a chapter called Racism. So... I mean, it's very much an issue um, at the forefront of my book because it's very much an issue in these communities. It's not its not something I'm doing for just political expediency. It's just there. <laughs> yeah, you know, any any problems you have in white working class community are, are X times larger in working class minority communities because of the racism factor. It is an expedient. And also, it really is fundamentally different also in the sense that there's a historical legacy there as well. So it really overlays everything because because we've gotten to a point now where we've talked about so much and we're so aware of it that it's always there lurking. There's a frustrated part of every community 
the black working class is frustrated, the white working class is frustrated, the Hispanic working class is frustrated, um, the back row of every every race is frustrated. How that frustration gets manifest is very much a function of race. The African-Americans can only vent their frustration in a certain way. They can't necessarily punch down. Um, there's nobody to punch down at. Um, and they've been punched down so often that they're very loath to use that card, whereas the white working class can punch down. And they can embrace politics of racism. It's a card they can play, and they play it. And so it's how it gets how it gets manifest, how that frustration gets manifest is very different. And that difference is very dangerous. If you you know don't want to see racism, and I think there's nobody out there who wants to see it, you have to be aware that that frustration, the negative consequences is not just you know drug use. It's it's the rise of racism in this country. I really do believe that racism is not a static thing that just is there and will never go away or never ebbs and flows. It ebbs and flows, and it responds to conditions. And I think we're producing the perfect conditions for a rise in racism. I know that some of the critique of your book, I'm going to say it this way, and then I want you to push back on this. But some of the critique has been, I think, along the lines of, uh, well, Chris is giving an excuse for why racism happens, or Chris is uh, basically telling us why we should feel bad for these poor racist people. And I hear it differently. I hear a lot of what you're saying as in like, hey, this is like the kindling of a fire. And we, you know, we can either like take the flame away and, and, and lower the kindling, or we may have a, a conflagration here and, and that's not a good outcome. How would you address that, that criticism of by essentially humanizing people who are beautiful in many ways, but also kind of not in some ways, uh, you know, who have racism along with their struggles, you're giving them uh, more credit than they're due. When I was out there telling people there's a chance Trump is going to win, I was saying it as a warning. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like an engineer who who sees a, a pipe and thinks there's a leak in it, and that leak could explode. Go, you know, yelling to everybody, "Careful, careful! There's a leak in the pipe. There's a leak in the pipe." And people saying, "Like, <laughs> why are you telling you know? Like, do you do you approve that leak? No, I don't approve that leak. I'm just I'm trying to warn you." <laughs> uh, and I feel like that in that some sense, I, you know, I'm trying to warn people that. This is, this is going to get much worse, and if you don't like the direction it's going, and, you've, and I don't think there are many people out there other than a fringe few who like racism, and you don't approve of it because I don't approve of it, then I'm telling you that it's, here are the conditions that make it worse, and please, please change those conditions. Don't have your head in the sand about it. If you put people in a situation where they're humiliated – and they feel like they have no other options. They're going to go in that direction. And and there's a and racism is an alternative, and it is an alternative. People are going to go there. Humiliated people, the search for dignity, the book calling my book is Dignity. It's about people trying to maintain dignity. The search for dignity doesn't always go in good ways. You know, people who are shooting up drugs often are looking for dignity as well. They, they're looking for the community of the crack house. They're looking for a way to feel – like a member of a community, and that community, you know, the, the drug house, the drug dens are very, are very much a community. White nationalism politics is a community. 
you got to give them an alternative community um, to make that community less appealing. I will join you in calling them out for their racism, but just calling them out isn't enough to stop future growth. You had one line in your book about affirmative action. And I want to kind of expose myself a little bit here because I I was one growing up in a, you know, in a small town, in a place that struggled, in a place that was in decline, a Scandinavian based kind of mostly white place. I thought affirmative action, like this is, this is wrong. I glommed onto the quota idea and uh, like, why do we, why are we doing this? And it was when I got a little bit, uh, we could say educated or whatever, and started, was kind of exposed to the idea of like, well, where'd you get your first job? Well, my first professional job I, I got because my uncle knew a guy uh, who, who, you know, worked at the DOT and got me an interview and that got me a job. And I started to recognize that, you know, it was really these social connections that I had that helped me get ahead that I actually came around to being a big supporter of affirmative action. Like I, I grasped it like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. This was in the 90s. Uh, when the economy is growing robustly, there seemed to be like more opportunity for people. This changes when, and, and I think you refer to it as, you know, it's seen differently when the, when the pie is shrinking, especially in places where the pie is shrinking. It seems like you described a lot of beautiful communities that were full of diverse people. It was racially diverse, a lot of diverse backgrounds, some places that, that weren't as diverse, but, but yet, you know, you had this strong sense of community. How important, especially in an age where in these places, the pie is shrinking in some sense, how important is it to empower these communities of people? Despite, you know, I, I think the other side of it where, boy, where, you know, do we empower communities and then they, they fight each other. I think that's the, uh, that's the pushback that I always get is, well, you, you want to promote that, that neighborhood group, Chuck, but then they turn into a bunch of racists and don't want black people moving in their neighborhood. What's the trade-off here? Because I, I feel like you're making a strong case for communities as a way to help people lift people up. One of the things I say about affirmative action is I, I'm, 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 I'm a supporter of affirmative action as well. I just worry that Unless larger structural changes are made, it's going to be an easy thing to blame, as you said, when the pie is shrinking. It's going to feel like, you know, as a gentleman in Milwaukee told me, if you only give nine bones to ten dogs, you're going to get fights. (laughs) And it feels like we are giving six bones to ten dogs, and how we distribute those is is seen as unfair. The systems that we came up with in different times – to solve some of these problems feel like in some ways are accelerating the problems today. Is that kind of a fair way to phrase it? Right. Without, without larger structural changes. Right. Right. And so it's kind of like we've, we're doing harm reduction in a patchwork method without changing the larger structural problems. And over time, a network of those different solutions can cause problems. If the larger problem isn't changed, like, you know, if you're a working class white guy and you're poor to, to make an accelerated version of you and, you know, your life is filled with dysfunction and somebody says, hey, you know, you got lots of privilege. 
that person doesn't really feel like they got lots of privilege. You know, when you know they're sitting, they're living in a trailer park <laughs> that's infected with drugs, and there's not many job opportunities, and they feel like everybody calls them dumb, and they feel like they're being made fun of. But relative to the trailer park five miles away that is African-American, they have lots of privilege. But that's not who they're comparing themselves to. They're comparing themselves to New York City or they're comparing themselves to the wealthy neighborhood uh, in D.C. Or So the problem is one of optics as much as anything is like is the working class white guy, the frustrated white guy has a lot more privilege than the frustrated black guy, but they both – have a lot less privilege than than the you know the wealthy elite telling them they have a lot of privilege. I wish we could reframe it back to hey guys, here's what you both have in common and focus on the gap between you and the elites, not the gap between the between you at the local level. And I don't know if you can do that though. That's the, again, that's that's the problem is they're going to look at each other, and the white guy's going to say he doesn't have a lot of privilege, even though he does. Did you ever see that Black Jeopardy on? Yeah, I mean that Saturday was perfect. That's with a, Tom Hanks, perfect, I yeah. looked at that and I'm like, that is the most brilliant commentary on where we're at. Yep, exactly. It was very spot on. You know, I mean, it's like, yep, that's it. You know, um, uh, you know, that's exactly. In many ways, that's the problem. That's so frustrating because. There's a lot in common, and I certainly saw that you know in my own hometown that I left. My hometown was pretty racially diverse, um, like a lot of southern towns, as opposed to a lot of northern towns, which aren't racially diverse. The irony there. I wrote a little bit in the book about my own experiences, and you know, I've, my school was one of the first integrated schools. I grew up in the south, rural south in the 70s, and you know, there was a lot of problems that went on, and I. I dealt with it by basically leaving, which you know, I, both the poor whites and the poor blacks didn't have that option. And when I go back now, I see that some of the white kids who were some of the most intolerant have, A, grown to be tolerant, which is great. But also they have a lot more in common with you know, all those – all the people I left behind, poor blacks and poor whites, have more in common with each other than they have common with me. They work similar jobs. They eat in similar restaurants. They shop in similar places. And so it's very frustrating to see the whites in that community you know, dismiss the blacks because I, there's so much in common with them that it, it's you – know, I don't know how politically you, you get the two to come together. Well, the, the end of that skit, that SNL skit, Final Jeopardy or whatever it's called, is uh, Lives That Matter – and uh, they all looked at each other like, okay, well, you know, all this togetherness now ends. Because, yes, exactly. And it, it's frustrating because it's like, it's like a manufactured anger at each other, right? Like, we can all agree that like every life matters. We can all agree that certain lives are treated even less than others. And that, that's a big issue. But the way it's framed, like you say, I, I walk around my community, I'm like, we should all be talking to each other. Like everybody here has a ton in common and they hate each other. You know, like one side of the tracks won't talk to the other side. And uh, you're like, why, why is that? It, it's, uh, it's very frustrating. And I feel like it's almost like when you talk to them, they're pawns of this like centralized dialogue that really is not only unhealthy for them, but I think unhealthy for the country as a whole. 
I can't get good news in my local paper about what's going on in my city, but I can get the latest news on Trump and, and, you know, the Mueller investigation and what have you from my local paper. And that just seems backward, right? Right. Race relations have gotten better in my old hometown, but they're, they're I mean, it's still this town, this town, the town is still divided by the railroad track. Um, in all these discussions, maybe it's my, my historical politics, but I, I like to think it's what I saw. I generally fall down on the side of, the minority community in most of these discussions where I think their grievances, their frustrations are fully legitimate. I would hope that the anger goes in a, up, up towards DC and less at the local level, because I really do think the system we have, again, the system of this educational meritocracy, this kind of material centric, efficient GDP growth really screws over minorities more than anybody because it really harms people who start off in the back row. And African-Americans and minorities disproportionately start off in the back row. And it's even worse than that because in some senses, the new system we have is more insulting than the old system in that it claims it isn't racist. It says anybody can do this. All you have to do is go to college. And then by doing that, it makes the people who don't do that responsible for the problems. Simply because, you know, like, what do you, why didn't you go to Princeton? Why didn't you study harder? And disproportionately, African Americans start in neighborhoods where getting to the front row are, is so much harder. It's so much harder for structural reasons. It's so much harder because of secondary – because the local education system is so much harder because of all the obstacles that are placed in them. We've denied that racism exists while making the system even more um, – even harder for someone to excel in. And I think that that just – one of the things that I didn't talk a lot about prior to the election but I saw – I mentioned a little bit of my book is there is such a frustration within, the, within African-American communities – I call it justified cynicism, where they just basically opt out. Like there's no point fighting. There's no point trying to engage in political process. There's no point joining a political movement because uh, you know we've been doing this for so long and we're getting nowhere. And so I call it justified cynicism, where they just kind of like you know I heard many people just tell me point blank, you know, like especially after Obama, like we we've had an African American president for eight years and nothing here has changed. So what more can we do? It's what I talked about, how race determines how you how your frustration and humiliation, humiliation plays out. For the blacks, the way it often plays out is to, to opt out, just to simply say, I can't, you know, <laughs> what's the point of this? And to just, you know, try to craft a life that accepts that this, nothing's going to change and this is just something you have to deal with, which is awful. It's awful, yeah. I want to quote something from your book and I want to throw an idea at you. You talk about the book itself. You say it's, it's a book about, and I'm quoting here, reconsidering what is valuable about honoring aspects of life that cannot be measured and about an attempt to listen and look with humility. For years and years, I would offer these critiques of cities and of the capital investments we were making and of the way we would finance growth and development and the way we would deconstruct our neighborhoods. And, and I would have people come back to me and say, okay, Chuck, what's your solution? Uh, 
And it was almost like I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to be a critic unless I had like a five point plan. And we, you know, our conversation here today, I've kind of found myself slipping into being that person to you say, well, how would you do this? Or how would you do that? And I, I apologize because I, the critique is important. After a decade of doing this, I've gotten to the point where I actually have a four point plan for cities to respond to these issues. And I, I, I want to give it to you real quick and get your reaction to it because it's very simple. The, the, for cities looking to make investments in their communities, to go out and actually do things. Here's our strong towns approach. Step one, humbly observe where people struggle. So get out behind your desk, go out and with humility, observe where people are struggling. Step two, ask yourself, what is the next smallest thing we can do to address that struggle? What is the thing we can do? Not with six months of studies or big committees. Like what can we do right now to make this a little bit better? What's the next smallest thing? Step three, do that thing. Like, do it right now. Don't wait. Just go do it. And then step four is to repeat that process. That's what I've come up with. Like, that's, that's my, like, when politicians call me or congressmen call me and they say, look, like, well, how do we do strong towns? That's what I tell them. And here's the, here's the frustration is they turn around and they're like, well, I, we can't do that. And I don't know why we can't do that. Does that make any sense? And then why can't we do that? Like, what is wrong with that approach? That makes complete sense to me. That's basically harm reduction, right? But harm reduction driven by the need, not by what you think they need, but what, what people say they need. <laughs> you know, people want a five-point plan, right? They, they, especially politicians, they want to feel like they're doing something. That's their job, right? To do something. So they want to feel like they're doing something. They want to be, I mean, for them to get elected, they have to be able to show they're doing something. And I think that's why they want the grandiose approach. But yeah, I mean, I, I think what you said is, you know, is, is what people want. It's like, you know, it can be small things like, you know, fix the damn intersection over at 5th and 9th, you know. Or, you know, why is the waterfront undeveloped? You know, why, why do we have to go through all you – know, why are there, you know, empty warehouses when there could be a place where our kids supply? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the right approach. It's incrementalism, but incrementalism driven from the, from the people who live there. That fits well with what I would say too. I think that's a good way of framing it. My issue is like one of the things I try to do is, you know, I also kind of want to crowdsource the solutions. I mean, I don't know, you know, I spent five years trying to diagnose, trying to look at the problem or describe the problem. I don't know why people would think I would know the solutions, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, one person can't really figure it out. And I'm kind of like, okay, here, my book is like, oh, here's the problems. You guys, you guys who are into policy, you people who are better at this than me, go at it. Um, you know, figure out what to do here. I think there was an analogy used. Someone said like, you know, I'm just telling you the aquarium water needs, you know, is dirty. <laughs> we can't throw all the water out without killing the fish. So I, I don't know how to, you know, I'm just, I'm just telling you the water's dirty, man. <laughs> you know? Like it's something's got to be done. I don't know how to clean it. Last time we were here, we spoke about Cairo and which is an extreme example. And I always sometimes think about that when I, people talk about solutions is because, you know, I sometimes just say, okay, well that works in aggregate, but would that work for Cairo or would that work for Portsmouth or would that work for South Bronx or would that work for, um, you know, Selma I think your your basically framework works for every place but Cairo. I think Cairo is one of the extreme cases where it's not clear there is anything to 
you know, I, I, I'm not sure. I think the problem there is so large that it's, it's hard to imagine incrementalism getting much done. Right, right. One of my favorite paraphrasings of you, it gave me permission to actually think about things radically differently, is you, you said something along the lines of economists got us here and the sociologists will get us out, which I took to mean the, the efficiency you know, model got us into this. And the messy, complex human nuance is like the only way to deal with that. Am I? That's am a, I, I, I say that phrase all the time. So yeah, I mean, that's my view. And, that, and yes, you got it. That's my intent. <laughs> loving spreadsheets got us into this mess. Um, loving ethnographic studies over long term is probably the only way to get us out. Yeah. Chris Arnotti, uh, the book is Dignity. I can't recommend it enough. I, I seriously listened to it on audiobook because that's what I do. Uh, I also had the Kindle version because I was reading it overnight and didn't want to keep my wife awake. But I had to buy the hardcover too because it is so full of gorgeous, beautiful pictures that really you don't get the full story unless you see the images. And so please go out and get a copy of the book and tell everyone you know about it. It's a very important story for America right now that people grasp. And Chris, it's so wonderful to chat with you again. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, I'll I'll talk to you again soon, okay? Okay, thank you. Take care. And thanks for listening, everyone. This is really important. And keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.